Would you pray with me before we start? Lord Jesus, we thank you that your wounds have paid our ransom. Lord, we, we were guilty because we sinned against you, Lord. We're sinners by nature. We're sinners by practice. And you have loved us so much that you have come when you've sacrificed yourself. And we have this opportunity to come together this afternoon to remind ourselves of the gospel. To remind ourselves of your work, of what you have accomplished on our behalf. And we have an opportunity to worship and praise you for that, because you deserve that praise. You desire that praise, and we desire to give that to you. Lord Jesus, I pray that right now as we go to your word, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would open our minds so that we may behold, as psalmist says, wonderful things in your law. We pray it would help us to understand this passage of Scripture that though we have heard it many times, we've read it dozens and hundreds of times perhaps, I pray that you would open it afresh to us, that we would meditate on this, that we would as a result examine our own walk and our own hearts before you, and as we do come to communion table, that we would truly worship and truly praise you for what you have done for us. Pray for myself that you would give me grace to take us through this and walk us through this text with clarity boldness for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Have you ever stopped and asked yourself this question? Hey, why am I doing this? We are creatures of habit. And there are so many things in our life that we do again and again and again. And habits are good. On the one hand, they're good because they free your mind to do something else while you're doing that thing that is routine. On the other hand, habits are bad because you can do them mindlessly. I can guarantee you that you can go through your morning routine without ever once thinking about what you're doing. And if someone were to stop you and say, hey, why are you doing that? Then you would have to stop for a moment and think about, hey, why am I doing this? Or why am I doing it this way? Because you've done it for as long as you could remember. And now it's mechanically, you're just going through the motions without ever thinking about it. You see, when it comes to the church, the same question needs to be asked again and again and again. Because in the church, we very often do same things again and again and again. And it could happen that just like in your personal life, you can get used to and you can go through the motions and you can do things mindlessly. In the church, it is the same thing. We come, we sing, we listen, we walk away, and our mind wasn't even here. It's possible that that would happen. That's why it is so important to come into the church and to re-examine and remind ourselves again and again of what, what we do and why we do it. If we're not careful, we will go through the motions without considering what it is and why it is that we're doing that. Now in the church, we do several things repeatedly. And we constantly need to remind ourselves, as I said, about the what, or of the why behind the what. For this reason, in the next two weeks, we want to spend time talking about the ordinances. We want to talk about communion, and we want to talk about baptism. Now, if you have a Catholic background, or if you know a little bit about Catholic theology, you know the Catholics have seven sacraments that they claim that in some way or another, those sacraments, they're mystical channels of grace into the lives of those who participate in them. You have a sacrament of baptism, you have communion, you have confession, confirmation, you have anointing with oil, or they call it extreme unction, then there is marriage, and whole holy orders, where they anoint priests. Now, we're not Catholics here, right? We believe in the Bible, and Bible alone. And Bible clearly states that there are two, and only two, ordinances. Now, these are ordinances, these are not sacraments. And there is a distinction between that. The word sacrament, it's a Latin term, and it's a Latin term that means sacred or holy. Now this term, sacrament, it is loaded with Catholic theology because as I said, they believe that to one degree or another, when you participate in the sacraments, you receive grace. Those sacraments in one way or another, or to one degree or another, they procure grace for the sinner who participates in them. 
New Testament never uses this term to describe either ordinance, either communion or baptism. New Testament clearly states that baptism and Lord's Supper in no way earn you God's favor. You don't get, you don't merit grace, you don't infuse righteousness, you don't forget your sins forgiven in that way, or baptism and communion in no way contribute to your salvation or your sanctification. The ordinance of baptism and communion, these are sacred memorials to remind us as believers of what God has already done for us. These are ordinances because they are commanded by Jesus himself to the church. We are ordained. We are commanded to do that. This is an ordinance for us. Now, as you think about ordinance of baptism and communion, this morning we're going to talk specifically about communion. And next Sunday we'll focus on baptism. Now, when you read the New Testament, there are multiple names that you will find that refer to the same ordinance. For example, in John chapter 13, verse 2, the ordinance of communion is called supper. I'm going to read you a few verses here. John 13, verse 1 says, Now the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that His hour has come, that He would depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And then it says, During supper, during supper, when He got together with the disciples, and everything else in John chapter 13, through John chapter 16, it takes place during that supper. Another name, for this ordinance is communion. We get that from John, from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. It says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Now you know this word sharing very well. It's a Greek word koinonia. You know that word. And koinonia means to share in, to participate in. Communion is the Latin equivalent to that term, which means to share in common. That's why when we say that when we come to the Lord's table, we share in the body and the blood of the Lord. That's why it's communion. Now from the same verse, we get another name for that in the New Testament, and that name is the cup and the bread. Listen to it again. It's not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood, blood, blood of Christ, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. He says it is the cup and that it is the bread. Another name is the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians 10.21 says this, You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So, so far we have the, la- the table of the Lord, communion, the cup and the bread, the supper. Another name perhaps you've heard of is Eucharist. This comes from Luke chapter 22, verse 19 says this, And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now this phrase, when he had given thanks, it comes from a Greek word, eucharisteo. That sounds like what? Eucharist. That's what it sounds like. He has given thanks, and they've taken that name and said communion is Eucharist. That's where it comes from. Now, as we look at this ordinance, with all these names being interchangeable, so as I preach this afternoon, I'm going to use them interchangeably. They all refer to the same thing. And our primary text for tonight, to, for this more, this afternoon, not morning or night, will be 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 32. Now, most conservative scholars agree that 1 Corinthians was written before any of the Gospels was, was, were written. So we can say that 1 Corinthians 11 is a first authoritative record where this ordinance was instituted. It was written before Matthew or any other gospel. Now that's not to say that they never practiced it before then, but that is to say that that this is a first recorded writings, which also includes the words of Jesus himself. Now as we work through this text, I want to give you three headings that will help us organize our thoughts. First, we're going to look at the pattern for the Lord's Supper. Second, we're going to consider the purpose of the Lord's Supper. And third, we're going to look at the practice of the Lord's Supper. The pattern, the purpose, and the practice. Or another way of putting it, we can say, hey, where does this come from? Second question, we'll answer, why are we doing it? And the third question, how are we supposed to do it? 
If you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, join me as I read, beginning in verse 17, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Paul writes this, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worst. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. And one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus... And the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and to drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, And a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Let's begin with the pattern for the Lord's Supper. Now here, in chapter 11, verse 23, Paul makes a reference to the first communion that ever took place. He says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which He was betrayed, took bread. Now you remember the Gospels. You remember on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus got together with his disciples and they got together to celebrate Passover. They didn't get together to celebrate communion. They got together to celebrate Passover. Listen to Matthew's account of that occasion. He says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into a city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher said, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. Jesus and his disciples got together to celebrate Passover. Now what is Passover? Passover was instituted in Exodus chapter 12. You remember in Exodus chapter 12, God is pouring out His judgment. Plague after plague after plague on the nation of Israel. And then before the final plague, God comes to the Israelites through Moses and He says, This is what you ought to do. You are to take a one-year-old lamb, unblemished and spotless. You are to slaughter that lamb. You are to take some of that blood, put it on the doorpost around your house. Then you are to go into that house. You are to prepare, roast that lamb. And you are to gather together and you are to eat that lamb with bitter herbs. And then he says this in Exodus chapter 12 verse 11. He says, Now you you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And you remember what happened next. 
Every firstborn in Egypt die because the angel of the Lord has destroyed them. But the houses of Israelites, which were marked by blood, were spared. Now this celebration of Passover, it goes back all the way to 1400 B.C. The Passover meal that the Israelites were supposed to take again and again, participate in yearly, it commemorated their deliverance out of Egypt and the way God spared their firstborn. The Passover looked back at the rescue from the physical bondage and mistreatment. This Old Testament Passover was a memorial meal. In the same chapter in verse 14, he says, Now this day will be a memorial for you. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. You see, the purpose of this Passover was to remind Israelites of of their deliverance. You see, because as men, we are prone to forget things. God has to set markers. And in the nation of Israel, He set this festival. He set this marker that every year you come together and you remember what I did for you. Old Testament Passover was a regular meal. In Leviticus, He says, These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. One day in Israel, one day in their history, every single year, you all come together and you celebrate the Passover. The Old Testament Passover meal was also a representative meal. The sacrificial lamb signified their salvation from sure death. If there was no blood, blood on the doorpost, someone would die in the family. It was a sacrificial lamb that saved their physical lives. The bitter herbs that they ate represented the bitterness of their slavery. An unleavened bread that was part of the celebration represented their separation from sin. Because very often in Scripture, leaven is a picture of sin. These elements of the meal, they foreshadowed and they pointed to the greater reality, which is fulfilled in the New Testament. Now when Jesus got together with His disciples that night, that's what they were celebrating. But as as they were celebrating the Passover that night, Jesus said, this is going to be the last Passover. And this is going to be the first communion. Now the scripture is silent regarding the order of that Passover meal. But we do know and we have historical documents and Jews even to this day, they celebrate the Passover. Listen to this description of the Passover meal because it is very precise and they continue to celebrate it in this way even to this day. This was the meal that Jesus transformed into communion. It says there's the Passover meal began with the host pronouncing a blessing over the first cup of red wine and passing it to others present. Four cups of wine were present around during the meal. After the first cup was drunk, bitter herbs dipped in fruit sauce were eaten and a message was given on the meaning of Passover. Then the first part of hymn, the Hallel, was sung. The Hallel is comprised of Psalms 113 through 118. And the first part song was usually Psalm 113 or 113 and 114. After the second cup was passed, the host would break and pass around the unleavened bread. Then the meal proper, which consisted of the roasted sacrificial lamb, was eaten. The third cup, after prayer, was then passed. And the rest of Hallel was sung. The fourth cup, which celebrated the coming kingdom, was drunk immediately before leaving. Now it is that bread and that third cup that Jesus transformed into a communion. In Luke chapter 22 verse 19, during this meal as disciples are eating, Jesus says this, and when he had taken some bread, that's the bread of the Passover meal, and he has given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them. And he says, no, we're not remembering now what happened in Egypt. This is something new. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And right after that bread, he takes the third cup and he took it and he said to them, This cup, this cup which is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. See, in effect, what Jesus is saying, for the past 1400 years, we got together year after year to remember our deliverance from Egypt. 
The lamb that we sacrificed every single year was pointing to the ultimate lamb. And I am that lamb. I will shed my blood and my blood will be the new covenant which was prophesied to you in Ezekiel and in the book of Jeremiah. I will give my life for you. And I want you to come together again and again and again and commemorate this occasion by coming to communion table regularly. You see, as Christians, we no longer celebrate the Passover. But what we celebrate is the Lord's table. You see, just like the Passover, the Lord's table is a memorial meal because we come together and we commemorate the death and the work of Christ Just like a Passover, it is a regular meal. So we come together again and again, at least here, monthly. We come together to remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us so that we will keep that memory afresh. Just like a Passover, it is a representative meal. Because the elements of bread and of wine or of juice, they simply point to the body and the blood of the Lord. You see, the Old Testament Passover provides a pattern for a New Testament communion. Because Jesus took the Old Testament Passover and he transformed it and he says, now you're going to partake in the communion or the Lord's table. Now with that in mind, I want us to consider secondly the purpose of communion. And here we're answering the question, why? Why communion? Now we know that communion was a common practice in the church from its very inception. The church was born in Acts chapter 2. And it says in Acts chapter 2 verse 42, it says they were continually devoting themselves to apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now when you come to the book of Corinthians, you come to chapter 11, and Corinthians managed to corrupt this practice in the church. Now you know well that the book of Corinthians is written as Paul's response to the questions that Corinthians had for Paul. And in some section, Paul just corrects them of the issues that he sees wrong in the church. Now one such issue was their participation in communion. Now as we look at our text, verses 17 through 22, provide for us a glimpse of what was going on in Corinth and how they corrupted Lord's table. Now, some things are explicit in this text and others are implied. And our job is to extrapolate the principles that Paul outlines in this text. As we work our way from verse 17 all the way through verse 32, I want to give you five purposes of the Lord's Supper. Five purposes of the Lord's Supper. Number one, the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to express unity. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is to express unity. Go back with me to verse 17. Paul begins this way, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Now verse 17 is an amazing verse. Paul says, you come together as a church, but you come together not for the better, but for worse. See, not every church gathering is for the better. Because if we come together and we don't do what the Lord commands us to do, He says, it's not going to be for your good, but it's going to be to your own detriment. Notice Paul identifies the problem in Corinth. And he says, this is your problem. I hear that divisions exist among you. Now, if you're familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, you know this is not the first time Paul is addressing this issue. In fact, as soon as Paul said hello in this book, he addressed the issue of divisions. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10. Paul says this, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. But the very first thing Paul addresses in this church, he says, guys, there are divisions among you. He just said, hello? He just said, hey, God's been super gracious to you. God has given you all the spiritual gifts. That's first eight verses of chapter one. And he says, guys, there are divisions among you. And that's not the only time he says this. Go to chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. He says, And I hear, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. 
Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. Since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Listen, you're dividing into camps. Oh, I'm follower of Paul. I'm following. And the most spiritual one says, oh, I'm follower of Jesus here. Paul's like, what? This is Jesus' church. And you have divisions and you have quarrels and squabbles among you. Now he takes the same issue and he brings it into the context of the Lord's table in chapter 11. You see, the Lord's table is a beautiful expression of believers' unity in Christ. When the church gathers together and everyone participates of the same table, it erases all the divisions. It erases all the classes and everything else. And Paul says, what are you doing when you come together? Look at chapter 10, verse 15. This is in a different context, but speaking of the same issue. 1 Corinthians 10, 15 says this, I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since then, since there is one body, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now obviously in this text, the cup of blessing refers to communion cup. The bread refers to communion. And when he says you are sharing, it's that same word that we looked at earlier, koinonia. There's sharing in the cup and sharing in the bread. The elements represent the body of Christ and they represent the blood of Christ. And when the whole church comes together, he says, you are expressing your unity together that you all partake of one bread. Now notice the picture here. He says, there is one bread and we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread. Now it's possible that when they did come for communion table, they had one loaf. One loaf which was broken and given to people. And everybody ate of the same loaf. And he says, look at this beautiful picture. You all come from different backgrounds. You all have different education levels. You all have different status. And yet you all come to the same table. And you're demonstrating the unity that you have in Christ. Now take this concept and bring it into chapter 11. If communion was to express that unity that you all have in Christ, what was going on here? He says, you come together to celebrate your unity, and yet you have squabbles among you. Notice, when Jesus just inaugurated communion, after the first communion, you remember in John chapter 11, Jesus prayed high priest, John chapter 17, he prayed high priestly prayer. And in the prayer, he said this, I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I have come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. Jesus prayed for the unity of the body, and Corinthians failed to express that unity. Now verse 19 in our text is very interesting, because Paul says, For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident. You know, Paul indicates with this verse that they will not be perfect unity in the church. And there's a benefit to that. Now he says, there must be, that word means necessary. It is necessary for there to be factions among you. The word faction is where we get the word heresy. Now, is Paul saying, uh, I mean, there is, it's necessary for there to be heresy among you? The word heresy did not mean what it means today, because today we're talking about somebody who holds to a heterodox view and believes some kind of heresy, we call them a heretic. But to heresy means to divide, to separate. That's what heretics do. They walk away from the truth and they hold on to their ideas. And so in this case, he says, there is going to be a division among you. Now, why is it necessary? Notice what Paul says. It is necessary so that those who are approved may become evident among you. He says some people are going to be right and some people are going to be wrong. And those who are approved will become evident through the factions that you guys have. Through divisions that you have. Because somebody will come along and they will introduce something new. And somebody has to get up and somebody has to say what is right and what is wrong. And through that the Lord will show who is approved and who is not. We see this example all throughout the scripture. Remember 12 spies. They go into the land to spy out the land. When they come back, they have faction. They have 10 people on one side, and you have 2 people on the other side. Right? 10 say one thing, 2 say the other. And by the time it was all said and done, we knew who was approved and who wasn't, because only 2 guys left standing. Right? 
But it was because of the faction. We see who was approved and who was not. And he says, in the church, same things. When you, same thing. When you will have divisions, when somebody will rise up and try to bring something, introduce something. Yeah, that's why you have elders. That's why you have pastors. That's what you, that's why you have approved men who will be able to get up, who will be able to correct, who will be able to show who is approved and who is not. Paul saying, this is necessary for you to have this in the church. But what you have, it's messed up. Because you come together and you're just splitting into your groups and you have factions among you. The purpose of communion table is to demonstrate that you are one in Christ. All of you come together and you express your unity by by partaking from the same table, from the same bread and the same cup. So the first purpose of communion table is to demonstrate your unity. The second purpose of communion table is to express fellowship express fellowship first corinthians chapter 11 verse 20 says this therefore when you meet together it is not to eat the lord's supper for in your eating each one takes his own supper first and one is hungry and another is drunk what do you not have houses in which to eat and drink or do you despise the church of god and shame those who have nothing what shall i say to you shall i praise you I will not praise you. Now, New Testament indicates and the history confirms that the early church developed a meal that went along, which was concluded by the Lord's Supper. The church got together and they had a community meal. When they ate together and at the end of it, they had Lord's Supper. Jude 12 tells us that that meal was also called a love feast. Now this was patterned after the Old Testament when a worshiper would bring a sacrifice of peace offering to the temple. He would sacrifice that animal, he would offer it to the priest, and then afterwards they would have a meal. The worshiper along with the priest, they would have a meal to celebrate. Now when the church got together, they had a corporate meal. The body got together, they ate together, and at the end of it they participated in a communion. Now Corinthians managed to pervert this practice as well. The result of that practice was that one was hungry and another was drunk. Now keep in mind, this is first century. This church here has a bunch of slaves. And these slaves do not work 8 to 5 and have Sundays off. No, they don't. So you, have, you can imagine a Sunday morning, the church got together, the slaves are all working, and the rich folks got together in the morning, and by the time the slaves got off work and they show up to church, you have a bunch of people in the church, they've eaten and they're drunk and the poor show up and there's nothing for them that's what happened here and Paul says hey what should I say to you that's why look at verse 33 Paul says so then when you come together wait for one another no they had the rich bringing their stuff and the rich they have a lot right so they bring their exquisite you know delicacies they bring their wine and everything else the poor show up they have nothing And because they have divisions in the church, this corner is for these guys, that corner is for those guys, right? And so those guys ate so much, not pointing to anybody, right? They ate so much, and they're drunk, and then these people are just looking at them like, what's going on here? Now, if communion table was to demonstrate the unity, and it was to express the fellowship that believers have, what kind of picture of unity and expression of fellowship is that? When you have few people who are drunk at the communion table, and others are hungry and have nothing. What kind of expression is that? Paul can't believe it. That's why in verse 22, he asks this question. He says, do you not have houses in which to eat? I mean, can't you just go home and eat and show up to church? Not hungry? Why are you bringing that into the church? Or are you doing it because you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Are you intentionally trying to destroy the fellowship of the church? Is that what you're doing? Do you think you're superior to others in the congregation? Do you think you're superior to people who have nothing? Do you think you have a right to shame them? To point to everyone that they have nothing, you have something? Is that why you're doing it? Do you think you're an elite? And you have a right to show contempt? What shall I say to you? How do you think I'm supposed to react to that? What do you think I'm supposed to write to you? Shall I praise you? Of course not. This conduct is not worthy of praise. You see, when you come to the communion table... All the distinctions are erased. It does not matter what your ethnicity is. It does not matter what your gender is. It does not matter what your social status is. No, we all come together. We sit at the same table. We eat the same bread. And we drink the same wine. That's what he's saying. It is 
to express our unity, and that is to experience that fellowship. You know, you get together with your friends for a meal. Tomorrow night, you're going to get together around food, right? And you're hanging out because you're fellowshipping with one another. You're having that good time. But what if you get together for a meal and you split off? And these guys, they're eating, you know, like caviar and stuff. And then these guys have nothing. What kind of expression of fellowship is that? It's not. But that's what was going on here. And he's saying communion table is for you to experience that fellowship. For slaves to get together with their masters and to say, hey, when we walk through that door, there are no slaves and there are no masters. When we walk through that door, when we come to this communion table, we're one. Why? Because we are sinners redeemed by grace. We worship one Lord. We believe in the same gospel. And we're one because we're redeemed by one Jesus Christ. So communion was to express unity. Communion was to experience fellowship. Number three, the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to exalt Christ. Not only that, look at verse 23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Notice Paul says here that, I received this directly from Jesus Christ Himself. Paul wasn't there at the first communion. And Paul didn't talk to people who were there to get this. No, I received this by revelation from Jesus Himself. And notice he says to Corinthians that this is not new new information for you. Yes, I am putting this in Scripture for the first time. But I already told you this. You know this, which I also delivered to you. I started your church. I was there teaching you and instructing you. And I have explained to you how you ought to participate in communion. Now, given his instruction, Paul takes us back to that first communion, as I mentioned. Notice he says, it took place in the night in which Jesus was betrayed. This is Thursday night. Jesus got together with His disciples to celebrate the Passover. As we said earlier, Jesus takes the bread, He breaks it, He gives it to His disciples and says, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now this phrase here, This is my body. How do you interpret this? Now we believe that this must be interpreted symbolically. Now, if you look at church history, all the way from the apostles till today, there are four major views of communion that people have in the church. The first view is called transubstantiation. This is a Catholic view. According to this view, they teach that when the priest pronounces a blessing on the cup and on the bread, the cup becomes the blood actual blood of Christ and the bread becomes the actual body of Christ. They are transformed and become the physical body and the blood of Christ. When the priest pronounces that blessing, that's why it's so holy, that's why if you go to a Catholic church a priest would drink the wine for you and he'll take bread and he'll put it in your mouth, right? So that you don't accidentally drop the body of Christ or spill the blood of Christ somewhere on the floor. That's how sacred they see that. Now just a side note, this is a Latin Mass because we're talking about a Catholic church here. If you were to take this phrase, this is my body, in Latin it sounds like this, hoc es corpus muen. That's where they get that phrase, hocus pocus. Because they believe that something happens. He just pronounces this one phrase and all of a sudden, magic. The body or the bread and the wine becomes the body and the blood of Christ. Now, we obviously do not believe that. Because Jesus is sitting there with His disciples. Think about the context in which He says, This is my body, which is for you. Now, Jesus is sitting there in His physical body. And He takes the bread. So what happens to that bread? What happens to His body? Makes no sense. Obviously, Jesus is not talking about it. And nobody would in their right mind just read this. Well, all of a sudden, that became his literal body. No. Just like in the Old Testament, it was a memorial meal when they said, Hey, eat this lamb, because this lamb is still the lamb. But it points to something greater. And in the same way, he says, this is the same thing with the body. Now, during the Reformation, 
when Martin Luther separated from a Catholic church, you get a second view. The second view is called consubstantiation. This is what is known as a Lutheran view. This is Catholic light, if you will. It's also known as the real presence view. Because when people were reformed, where people understood the gospel, they're like, man, this is kind of a problem that this becomes Jesus' body. So we're probably not going to believe that. So what are we going to believe? So this view teaches that the bread and wine, they do not become the physical body and the blood of Christ, but that He is really present, and the way they put it, in, with, and under the communion elements. That Christ somehow mystically, supernaturally is present in the elements when you partake in them. Now, obviously, this is a step better, but still not good. That's why as you go further down the line, there is a third view, which is a Reformed view. It's called the spiritual presence. Now, this view holds that Christ is spiritually present in a special way when believers come together to celebrate communion. Christ is present among believers. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying that, because we do know if you're a believer, Christ is always present with you. Not only during communion, but at all times. So it's not wrong to say that Christ is present among us when we partake in the communion. But see, this language is potentially unhelpful and it's confusing. That's why there is a fourth view, which we hold here, and it's called the memorial view. This view holds that the bread and cup symbolically represent the body and the blood of Christ. In this view, the elements have no literal or mystical connection to the body of Christ These elements, they merely represent the body and the blood of Christ. And even as we work through our text, we can see clearly this view presented here. Notice Jesus takes the bread and He gives it to the disciples and He says, This is my body, which is for you. He takes bread and He says, This is my body. And notice, which is for you. There is substitution here. This is what Jesus is teaching, substitutionary atonement. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Now, disciples, they don't understand that. I mean, can you imagine these disciples, these 12 guys? They've been celebrating Passover their entire life since they were like this big. And they remember how the thing goes. They remember everything. And all of a sudden, Jesus takes the bread and he doesn't point backwards, but he points forward. And he says, guys... Yeah, we've been celebrating Passover, but this is something else. This is my body, which is given for you. I am going to die for you. And then the rest of the New Testament clearly explains that. See, that lamb that was sacrificed in the Old Testament, it covered the sins of those for whom it was sacrificed. And it temporarily blocked the wrath of God, so that God spared the person. But now Jesus says, I am the Lamb of God, who is going to take away the sin forever. This is my body, and I'm going to give it for you. And then he gives a command. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, remembrance is more than just merely recalling to memory. It doesn't mean to recall. It means to meditate. It means to let those truths affect you so much that you begin to exalt Christ for what He has done. That's why I say the purpose of the communion table is to exalt Christ. Because it's much more than just like, I remember Jesus died for me, great, awesome. No, it's not the point. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, He says, I want you to stop. I want you to stop regularly. And I want you to stop and I want you to meditate on what it is that I have done for you. What it is that I have sacrificed for you. This is a time for you to meditate on it, to let the truth affect you, so that you begin to exalt Christ. Now he repeated the same instruction for the cup. When he says in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You see, the old covenant was ratified with the blood of bulls and goats. Remember when Moses was done, given the law, he slaughtered and he sprinkled the people with the blood, he sprinkled the book with the blood, and Jesus says, no, this new covenant is a covenant not in the blood of lambs and goats, but this new covenant is ratified in my blood. I am the one who's going to sacrifice myself on your behalf. Notice, In the Old Testament, you were to bring your sacrificial lamb to a priest. And the priest would offer that up to God. And Jesus is the high priest who takes himself and offers himself to the Father. And the Father accepts the sacrifice. That's what he's saying here. This is my body which is for you. This is my blood which is for you. Now notice, it's a command. 
do this in remembrance of me. Twice in this text you have this command. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, if this is a command, then not to participate in communion for a believer is sin. Right? Because if you're commanded as a believer to participate in communion, and you don't participate, then it's sin. You're disobedient to a clear command, at least twice given in this text. But this is a sobering thought when so little attention and emphasis is placed on communion today. When he says that you as a believer come to a communion table, it is an opportunity for you to stop, to think about what Christ has done for you, and to exalt Christ for His work on the cross. But not only that, it is not only an opportunity to exalt Christ. Number four, the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to extend Christ. Look at verse 26. It says, For as often as you eat this bread, and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. You see, communion table is not only an opportunity for you to stop and to meditate and to exalt Christ, but He says this is an opportunity for you to proclaim and to extend Christ to others. Communion is a proclamation of Christ. The physical elements of bread and wine, they point to the ultimate reality. They point to Jesus Christ. And he says, when you come together as a body, and you celebrate communion, and there are unbelievers present among you. Unbelievers, you're like, why are they doing that? What is that all about? And he says, this is just another opportunity for you to put Christ forward, to proclaim Christ to everyone who's watching. You are exalting Christ because you have benefits of that. But the others who are watching, they see the benefits of it. They see the ceremony. They see you going through the motions. You going and eating the bread and drinking the cup. And this expresses the gospel. This is a display of the work of Christ. When should we stop taking communion? Well, according to this text, it says when He comes. That means that if you're a believer... You have a command to participate in communion. And you got to participate in the communion until you either die or the Lord comes. Those are the only two options you have. You don't have another option. When He comes, there is going to be an ultimate supper where we will participate in the bread and the cup with Jesus Himself and His kingdom. We'll get to that in a second. So the purpose of the Lord's table is to express unity. It is to experience fellowship. It is to exalt Christ. It is to extend Christ. And finally, number five, the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to examine self. Examine self. You see, communion is a God-ordained opportunity to assess yourself and your walk before the Lord. Now Paul concludes his instruction with this sobering warning. Look at verse 27. He says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. You see, because the elements in the communion table, they symbolically represent Christ. How you approach communion is indicative of how you treat Christ. That's what he's saying in this verse. If you were to take an American flag and you were to burn it, you're not just burning a piece of cloth, right? You're making a statement about the country that this flag represents. So what Paul is saying here, if you come to communion table lightly, if you mistreat the elements of the communion table, that is just indicative of how you treat the one in whose honor you have communion table. That's what he's saying. If you come to the table and you drink in an unworthy manner, you will be guilty of the body and of Christ. You're not just guilty against the table of the Lord. You're guilty of Christ Himself in whose honor the table is set up. Notice he says here, you can partake communion in an unworthy manner. Question, what is unworthy manner? Now, I think it's safe to say that in this context, because he's confronting Corinthians. I think it's safe to say that what Corinthians were doing, were participating in the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Right? 
because we'll see the consequences of that in just a second. What were they doing? Well, first of all, we can say that they disturbed the unity of the church by splitting into factions. Isn't that what they did? Rather than coming together and being one body, they disturbed the unity. They disregarded one another. They did not consider another person as more important than themselves. Not only did they disturb unity, they disrupted the fellowship. They disrupted the fellowship by mistreating one another. If you're rich, you're looking down at the poor. If you are poor, you're perhaps becoming bitter against the rich. And so they disrupted the fellowship. It wasn't one body, it wasn't one fellowship when we all come together and we share in the elements and we worship Christ. Third, they despise Christ. They despise Christ by failing to exalt Him at the table. How do we know that? Because their gathering was not about Christ. Their gathering was about them. Notice if you come to the table and you just care about eating nice food and drinking nice wine, this is not celebration of Jesus. This is not the point of you like, hey man, I just really want to think about Jesus at the moment. That's not what happened. They despised Christ. And not only did they despise Him, they disguised Him from others. Because I bet no one looked at the communion table they were celebrating like, man, I really want to know more about this Jesus. No, I mean, some unbeliever walked into the church and he looked at it like, there's a group of drunk people over there, these poor guys are saying, I really want to know more about Jesus. No, it's not what happened. By their practice, they disguised them from those who needed to know about Him. And finally, they disregarded self-examination. They did not examine themselves. That's why Paul gives this warning in verse 28. He says, but a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. Again, notice this is a command. He must examine himself. You're given a command. You're given command, first of all, to participate. But before you participate, he says, you must examine himself. Examine who? Examine yourself. Not examine the fellow next to you. Or not to think like, I wish that other person was here because he really needed to hear this. No, he says, when you come to the communion table, you examine himself. You examine yourself. You examine, you assess. You assess your own relationship with Christ and with others. Because you take those five categories that we talked about, and notice they relate either to Christ or they relate to your fellow believer. You see, in communion, you have assessment of these two categories. What is my relationship with Christ? And what is my relationship with other people in the body of Christ? Right? When it comes to your relationship with Christ, well, first of all, do you believe in Christ? Do you believe that you are redeemed by His blood? Do you believe that? Are you a believer, first of all? Do you walk the walk of sanctification in terms of your relationship with Christ? If Jesus Christ is your Lord, do you obey Him as your Lord? These are the questions that you might ask yourself as you are examining your relationship between you and God Himself, Christ Jesus Himself. What about your relationship with others? In what way have I failed to love my fellow brothers and sisters as I love myself? I mean, to greatest commandment, love God and love your neighbor. I mean, it's a great assessment. In what way have I failed? Do I disregard or do I despise them just like Corinthians have? Do I have hate in my heart towards anyone in the congregation? Be that in my family or in the bigger family of the church. Have I thought, said, or did something that would dishonor them or would dishonor Christ? I mean, you stop for a moment before you partake in the communion and you evaluate your relationships. Relationship with the Lord and relationship with others around you in your immediate family and in your body and the body of Christ in your church. And you see, examination is not just there to like, okay, I'm, no, I can't partake in the communion. No, examination must lead you to confession. That's the point of it. Because in order for you to be right with God, what do you have to do? You have to confess. And because you can confess, you have promise from God, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess, He will forgive. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Why is He faithful and righteous? Well, because He died for that sin already. Whatever it is that you've done yesterday, today, or will do tomorrow, Christ died for that if you're a believer. And so He says, when you come to the communion table, it is an opportunity for you to stop once again and to take stock of your life and to see what doesn't match 
the Word of God and bring that to the Lord. Confess. And confession, what is confession? Confession is acknowledging that what you have done displeases God. It's saying about your sin what God says about it. That's what confession is. Confession means to say the same thing. If God says this is wrong, I say this is wrong. And I bring that and I open that before the Lord. You see, that's why preparation for communion begins a lot earlier than you show up and you sit in the pew. Because confession, it goes to the Lord, and it goes to the person that you've sinned against. If you've sinned against the purpose, and Jesus says, hey, you bring your sacrifice to the altar, He says, stop, and go to the person, and make it right, and then come back and offer your sacrifice, right? So that's why preparation for communion table is much more than just coming here. Yes, in many cases, you just go before the Lord, and whatever it is that the Lord brings to your mind, you confess to Him. Preparation for communion is an essential step before you actually partake of communion. Now, what if one fails to examine himself? Well, Paul says that that person eats and drinks judgment to himself. A believer who participates in communion in an unworthy manner, he brings discipline upon himself. Now, how severe is this discipline? Look at verse 30. He says, For this reason, many... Among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Some of you experience weakness. Some of you are sick. And many of you are dead. Dead. This word sleep refers to physics. It's a euphemism for death. Because believers, when they die, they don't really die because they just sleep, because they will be raised again. And he's talking to believers in the church. And he says, because you guys come to the table, and because you get drunk at the table, because you, 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 know, you fight, you quarrel with one another, and you never resolve those issues, and you come and you dishonor the table of the Lord. The Lord disciplines. And the Lord disciplines by making some of you weak. The Lord disciplines by giving some of you sicknesses. And he kills some of you. But does that mean that those who have died lost their salvation? Look at verse 31. He says, if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned with the world. The answer is emphatic, no. Notice this verse, first of all, says here that you can avoid such discipline. How? By examining yourself. By examining yourself and dealing with sin in your life, he says you can avoid such discipline. Again, so many things in our lives we can avoid by actually not doing stupid things and sinning against the Lord. And when we do sin, to go to the Lord and confess, to go to the people that we've sinned against and confess that. And verse 30 says, listen, if you judge yourselves rightly, we would not be judged. If you did proper assessment, if you dealt with the sin, there wouldn't be these consequences. But if you don't do that, he said some people are judged. And they're disciplined by the Lord. And in some cases, he says, it goes as far as God taking away physical lives from people. He says a number of you, which means a significant number of you. Many among you are dead. You see, God cares about you so much. And God cares about the church so much. God cares about the purity of the church. That He's willing to go this far. He's willing to take lives of His children so that they would not persist in their sin and end up in hell. And He loves His church so much that He will purify it by taking those children of God who continue to persist in sin and taking their lives. Now this is not to say that we can point fingers at people and say, you're sick because... no. I mean, Paul is writing here under the divine inspiration. And he understands what's going on. He understands the situation. And he says, hey, this is how much God cares for you. This is how much God cares for the church. God will not let you go down into your sin and continue to stay there. And if you're not willing to repent, even as a believer, God will might take away your life, your physical life. You'll die. But notice this phrase. It is a loving thing. It is a loving thing. Why? So that we will not be condemned along with the world. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is nothing you can do that will destroy you and send you to hell. Absolutely nothing. But if you fail to take holiness seriously, if you fail to repent, if you fail to deal with sin as a believer... 
It might come to this, but you will not be condemned along with the world. That's the promise, that's the guarantee that he gives here. It is an expression of love from a loving father to stop the child from running and continuing in sin so that he would destroy himself and it might end in physical death. Notice, that's why we celebrate communion regularly. Because it is an opportunity for everyone who professes to believe, for everyone who says, yes, I am a child of God. Yes, I have been redeemed by Him. It is an opportunity for you to take stock of your life, to assess your walk before the Lord, to assess your relationships with others, and to make it right. To make it right. So we looked at the pattern, we looked at the purpose. And I just want to conclude by summarizing all this under our third heading, the practice of the Lord's Supper. How should we participate in communion? Well, number one, we must assemble as a church. We must assemble as a church. Everywhere in the New Testament, communion is practiced in the context of a gathered church context of a gathered church. And notice our text is explicit about this. Look at verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for worse. Verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church. Verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together. Look at verse 33. So my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The Lord's Supper is not a private matter between you and Jesus. There are no examples in the New Testament where the Lord's Supper was, was somebody partook of the Lord's Supper by himself or even with his immediate family. There are no examples of that. The church gathered together. The body gathers together. Why? Because if we take our five purposes that we said, if the purpose of the communion table is first of all to express our unity, you express your unity high by yourself at home partaking in communion? No. You have a bunch of people gathered together as a church and you together eat of the same table, you express your unity. When it comes to fellowship, again, it's not one-on-one between the Lord just like you can pray. Fellowship involves other believers. You have fellowship with the Lord, but fellowship at the table, you celebrate that together with the Lord. You exalt Christ as Lord at the table. You proclaim Christ not by yourself to who? No. All of these purposes, they're all to happen in the body. When the body gathers together. That's why it's not an online communion. Body comes together to eat together from the table and drink from the cup. So you must assemble together. Number two. You must assess yourself. Assess yourself. I'm not going to repeat everything that I said above. But just to say, this is an opportunity when we come together. Before we partake of the communion, it is a time for you to assess yourself. Examine your heart before the Lord. Examine your walk before others. Confess. And receive forgiveness that God offers. Once you've assembled, once you've assessed yourself, then He said, then accept the cup and the bread and partake of it. Now you're ready to eat and drink. You see, after you've done those two things, after you've walked through your life in your mind, and after you've confessed your sin, after you got right with the Lord, listen, it is a time of celebration. Yes, there is the sober moment where you're coming to the table, and when you're saying like, listen, I'm going to partake in something that is holy at the moment. But remember that this is a celebration. When people got together to celebrate the Passover, it was a celebration of deliverance. So we don't just want to be sober here, like, oh man, this is me. I might die here right now. No. Well, after you've assessed your walk, listen, it is an opportunity for you to celebrate. Passover was a celebration. People got together, it's like, man, the Lord has been super gracious to us. Delivered the whole nation from Israel. And we come together, the Lord has been super gracious to us. He has forgiven us all our sins. He has given us eternal life. And we can celebrate. You come together for a meal with friends, right? You celebrate. And that's what communion table is. You celebrate. During that first communion, when Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, in verse 29 of chapter 26 in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of wine from now on 
until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The day is coming when Jesus himself will celebrate this with his church in his kingdom. We get together and there is going to be a real celebration. Jesus says, hey, I'm partaking of this now. I'm going to wait till I come back. We set up the kingdom and we're going to eat together at the Lord's Supper. There's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb, right? Where you will participate in this if you're a child of God. And you'll be bright and clean and all of your sins will be wiped away. They're already wiped away, right? You'll be positionally and practically perfect. That day is coming. And when we come together to celebrate communion, we're looking forward to that. And we celebrate and we rejoice in what God in Christ has done for us. Now we have done the first step. We've assembled together. We gather here and praise God. I'm going to pray right now. And after that, we'll take a few moments. That's going to be an opportunity for you to do the step two. For you to just go before the Lord and to assess yourself. In light of what you heard, in light of these verses, whatever it is that the Lord has brought to your mind, go to the Lord. Go to the Lord. Confess, pray, ask, and receive from Him the forgiveness that He offers. And afterwards, the men will pass the bread and the cup and will partake together. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank You. I thank You for the blood that was shed on our behalf the body that was ripped for us. I thank you that, as you said, that this is my body for you, my blood for you, that we deserve that judgment, we deserve that punishment, and you took it. I pray that right now as we come to your table, that you would give each person here mind to assess themselves rightly. I pray that we would not rationalize, we would not justify, but we would look at ourselves through the prism of your word. I pray that you would point out things in our life that are displeasing to you. And we know that repentance is a gift from you. We pray that you would give that even here this afternoon. And we pray that you would forgive us. And we praise you that we have a promise that you will. That as we come to this table in just a moment, none of us would participate in an unworthy manner but that we would exalt you, that we would proclaim you, that we would experience fellowship here, that we would express the unity that we have. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.